Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I'm talking to Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. Trevor uh, recently reported on efforts to tighten up the legislation surrounding state questions. Trevor, can you start us off by talking about why this is happening right now? Yeah, so in the past six years, voters have approved a number of state questions. Many of them have run counter to what leaders in the legislature and the governor have wanted Things like medical marijuana, Medicaid expansion, and criminal justice have all passed in the last six years. And uh, what are some of the proposals that are out there now that could affect that going forward? Yeah, so a lot of, or a number of Republicans and Governor Stitt have have made comments that the state question process needs to be reined in a bit. Um, So there's proposals out there that would require a majority of voters and two-thirds of Oklahoma counties to vote for some of the state questions in order for them to take effect. You know, this would be a huge um, burden to get a lot of these things passed. You know, there's a lot of counties, 77 in the state, um, so that could over, you know, rule what Oklahoma City or Tulsa does. There's other things that would mandate background checks for petition circulators and even block out-of-state funding for initiative or referendum campaigns. So... it sounds like some of these bills are really intended to make it harder to get a state question on the ballot, harder for Oklahoma residents to put state questions on the ballot, and then also make it harder for those to pass. Is that a fair summary of some of the bills you're seeing? Yeah, that's correct. There's a number of them that would say you have to have maybe 55% of a votes to pass a constitutional amendment, or you need two-thirds or three-fourths of all counties to pass a state question. Other ones would make um, the challenge period a little longer to give more time for people to you know, file lawsuits and, and things like that while the before the, the state question actually even gets on the ballot. Okay, and, and then for some listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the process, uh, there's two ways right now to change the state question constitution, right? Can you describe those? Yeah. So one way is for the legislature to directly put a state question on the ballot. All they need to do is pass a joint resolution during the session. And that means the next um, election or primary election, there will be a state question that the legislature designed. Um, Oklahoma is also one of about 28 states that uh, allow citizens to put initiatives on the ballot. Now, this is done by you have to get... um, I think between 6 and 9%, depending if you're doing a statutory or constitutional amendment. Um, but you need tens of thousands or even hundred more than 100,000 signatures of registered voters just to get on the ballot. And then you have to survive legal challenges and all sorts of other um, procedural maneuvers. Okay. And now, uh, Governor Stitt has had a few things to say about the whole state question process recently, hasn't he? Yeah, so he actually uh, mentioned this during his recent State of the State address. Um, He specifically called out the medical marijuana state question. He said it was misleading and voters were sold a bill of goods. He even went on to blame organizations outside for influencing the elections, saying this is a perfect example why we need to make sure initiative petitions represent Oklahomans, not out-of-state special interest groups. Um, 
However, he has not put forward any specific plans or he hasn't, you know, called for specific legislation. Okay, you you ran some campaign numbers after that, right? What did those show? Yeah, so it definitely painted a more complicated picture than the governor and some other Republicans have suggested. Um, there have been a number of state questions, such as um, SQ 805, that was the sentencing reforms um, in 2020. Um, a lot of that funding for that came from out of state. But I found a lot of other state questions, including Medicaid expansion, um, medical marijuana, the vast majority came from in-state sources. Okay. Um, some community organizers uh, have had some things to say about this effort to make it more difficult to get state questions on the ballot. What What are you hearing from them? Yeah, so I talked with Amber England. She ran the Medicaid expansion state question a few years back. Um, you know, she's been very involved in these type of processes. She called this a scare tactic um, by lawmakers. And, you know, this is one of the areas where they're afraid of ceding power to the voters. We saw this debate play out with the redistricting and um, a proposal to do a citizen-led um, redistricting panel. You know, she made the, the argument this is another area where lawmakers don't want to see the power. They want to be the ones that are creating the laws, not directly the people. Um, there's definitely different philosophies on that, but, you know, the overarching um, complaint from some people is that they want more power on the people rather than the legislature. Okay, you you talked to one state legislator uh, who thinks he has a compromise. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I talked with Representative Newell, Newton. Sorry, um, He is putting forward a proposal that would um, require 55% of the vote to pass in for constitutional um, amendments that are uh, on a state question. You know, he told me that he thinks some of the other ones might be a bridge too far, things like adding, you know, requiring two-thirds of the counties. But he thinks, you know, for a constitutional amendment, which is really hard to change, um, there should be a hard, higher threshold. The uh, You mentioned that the governor had not put forth any uh, specific legislation himself. Is he supporting any of these bills specifically? No. So I talked with the uh, the governor's office and, you know, they told me that the governor doesn't, uh, you know, traditionally comment about pending legislation. You know, that's not always true. The governor specifically said he backed Senator Treat's um, backpack funding bill during the, the session. Um, but, you know, we really don't know what the governor's feeling except that he Watch it tightened. We don't know what specifically he wants tightened, what rules changed. So it's kind of a mystery box at this point. Okay. What, what kind of feedback did you get on the story? Yeah, so I, I included the story in my uh, newsletter that we put out every week, and um, I got a number of feedback from um, readers. Um, almost all of them were very concerned about legislators taking away power from the people. And they made the point that, you know, they even, you know, some people said, we will revolt if this happens. I don't think it's, that's going to happen. But, you know, the certain shows that people don't like, you know, the voters, at least a, a population of the voters, don't like having their power or rights changed or taken away from. Or limited. Okay, we'll keep an eye on those bills. Thanks, Trevor. Trevor Brown covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. You can read that story and all his other investigative work at oklahomawatch.org.
In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Paul Monies, who covers state government for Oklahoma Watch. Paul wrote about some secrecy in the state's use of federal COVID-19 relief funds. Paul, how much did the federal government give Oklahoma in the latest round of pandemic aid? Yes, in the latest round, which came from uh, last year, uh, the state got $1.87 billion to spend on various things. Are there uh, any limitations on that federal aid? Well, generally, it's, there's a lot of uh, discretion that states have for those funds, but uh, generally they're supposed to address the economic fallout from the pandemic, as well as some of the health and medical needs. And then there's a decent chunk that goes to infrastructure like water and sewer uh, upgrades and broadband needs. Can you describe the process on how projects are picked by the legislature and the governor? That's right. Yeah, this time around, the legislature and the governor have uh, kind of come together a little bit more than the first time um, they had the CARES Act money in 2020 from COVID. Uh, this time around, the legislature has established a joint committee between the, the Senate and the House, and they've got various working groups that work on different projects, part that are eligible for this funding, and then the ultimate decision goes to Governor Kevin Stitt. How long do they have to do that and spend money? So they've got until the end of 2024 to allocate the money, and they've got until the end of 2026 to actually spend the federal relief money. So how many applications has the state received? How much is the total that's been requested? So, so far, the state opened up applications uh, last fall, and they've gotten about 780 projects so far applied for, uh, and that total is about $12 billion right now. And so why is the state refusing to disclose details of those applications? Well, the state is basically treating these all as one giant bid for money where all the applicants are competing against each other, including private and public entities. Um, And they say that there needs to be confidentiality within that process that no one knows what everyone else is asking for. Of course, this is a huge pile of money. And, you know, there's, there's some state agencies that have asked for money as well. So does that secrecy extend to those state agencies that are asking for some of the the COVID relief money? It does. And that's kind of how we got into the story in the first place. We were asking just a follow-up question on the State Department of Health and their application for some some funding. Um, I was told by the State Department of Health to talk to the people at the Management Enterprise Services. And they said, well, we have this memo that makes it all secret. Sorry. So is there some point where that curtain will be pulled back and the, the public will know about the projects? It is. I mean, they, say, they call it temporarily confidential right now. And they say that basically the process is once the legislature has its process with approving the projects and the governor ultimately secures the funding for that project with this approval, uh, that will then become uh, a public document available for public inspection. Okay. So... Um, that sounds fairly reasonable, right? There, There's maybe some competitive bidding going on. They want to give everybody an equal shot. Why is it problematic that uh, that's all being kept secret so far? Well, just from the outside, there's these are varied projects. I mean, we're talking about anything from technology upgrades for state agencies to, you know, water and sewer needs around the state um, to broadband, which there's a, a big push for at the legislature. It can't really be described as the same type of funding for each one as you would on a normal bidding situation where the state may go out and, you know, buy uh, a technology structure for finance or something like that. I mean, that's one discrete object of thing that you would buy. Um, this is all across the map, across all these uses. So one one company bidding on a, a water project or putting in an application for a water project isn't really competing against a telecommunication company that wants to build broadband infrastructure, right? There's no no harm in those two knowing what the other one is asking for. 
That's right, and that's what we tried to explain to the state and say, why is this secret? And they just keep coming back to this memo they issued. Uh, so what kind of feedback did you get after that story ran? So I've, I've talked to some lawmakers who were kind of confused by the, this, this blanket secrecy order. Um, also, the, the Tulsa World has picked up our story and wrote an editorial this week, kind of criticizing some of these decisions that states made on the secrecy. Uh, is there a chance that with all that being done in darkness that that, that could lead to some nefarious deals or I mean that's that's definitely the the, the, the danger in some of this keeping it under secret uh, and and you know there's also a danger if, if you know they they come to the process and they say well we've figured this, this out and then no one else really had an idea of that's what they were looking at and so it's too late at that point it's already down you know, um, and almost approved at that point, and no one comes up and says there's no scrutiny beforehand about this company has issues or this is not a great project we want. Um, so there's all those kind of issues with that as well. So uh, nearly $2 billion of public money that goes to public projects that at least so far the public can't know about. Is That's that right. a fair summary? Yes, right. We know a tiny bit. They've, they've gone through a little bit of the process so far um, with some of these funds was on, on the broadband side and some of the... Uh, health and kind of uh, medical recruitment side, but that's a tiny, tiny part of it so far. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, Paul Money's covers state government for Oklahoma Watch. You can read all of his work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, we're talking to Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Jennifer has been following a Senate proposal to create a school voucher program and working on a story uh, that we'll publish soon. Jennifer, what have you found out so far? About a month ago, I wrote in my Education Watch newsletter that Senate Bill 1647 was the bill I'd be watching most closely this session. That bill, like you said, would create universal school vouchers, meaning any child in the state who did not attend public school could be eligible for several thousand dollars to spend on educational expenses like private school tuition or homeschool supplies. There's a couple of reasons I'm watching this bill. It's a leadership bill. It's a priority of Governor Stitt. And the potential cost of the program is very high. That's one thing I've really been trying to figure out is what would it cost if implemented as they proposed. And there haven't been many details on that yet. Where is the bill at the moment in the process? It narrowly passed the Senate Education Committee, and on Wednesday of this week is on the agenda for the Senate Appropriations Committee. If it passes there, which is likely, it will move on to the full Senate. What kind of chance does it have? I think its chances are pretty good in the Senate, but in the House, much less so. Um, House Speaker Charles McCall has come out and said he won't hear the bill. He said he has no interest in it, and he's questioned the benefits for students in rural communities like Atoka, where he's from. But he's got a lot of pressure on him right now. There are some deep-pocketed groups that support spending public funds on private schools, and um, like Club for Growth is one. It's a D.C.-based group, and they've spent $25,000 on TV ads criticizing his decision. So... Uh, could public schools end up losing funding if this bill were to pass? Absolutely, they could. Um, the The main thing is if we're adding more students to the, um, you know, to the total number that we're funding, but not adding extra funds on top of that. I mean, it would dilute the total 
you know, per student amount that the state provides. And that could uh, impact every school, even if no students leave to take a voucher. Okay. You mentioned a club for growth in uh, Washington, D.C. that's uh, putting money behind this bill to support it. Who else is supporting the plan and, and what's their rationale? Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs is a right-leaning think tank. They've been one of the most vocal proponents. Um, They say public schools need competition for dollars to improve, and they also say low-income families should be able to afford private school tuition just like wealthier families. There are a couple of other national groups. um, Excel in Ed, which is Jeb Bush's organization in Florida, has come out in support of it. And then, of course, Governor Stitt, who mentioned this bill in his state of the state and is it said it's a priority. Who's on the other side of the fence? Who's against it? Well, unsurprisingly, some public school superintendents have come out um, in, in opposition. There are some advocacy groups, too, like the Oklahoma State School Boards Association. And then um, one of the most prominent conservative homeschool groups has actually come out against it, Reclaim Oklahoma Parent Empowerment. Are other states doing something similar at the moment? Yeah, there are several states, Utah, Georgia, Iowa, that are considering voucher proposals this year. There are a couple of states like Arizona that already has a similar program that's not available to all students, and and they've been trying to expand it. So the idea of school vouchers and... um, kind of it's why it's called the backpack bill, right? Making making students portable, they can go to a private school, a charter school, a public school, homeschool, whatever, and the money just follows that student for whatever uh, kind of education the parents want to engage in. Um, this is not a new idea, right? This has been around for decades and decades. What's different about this bill at, at this time trying to find its way through the legislature from what we've seen in the past? I mean, a big thing that's really different about this bill is there are no um, income limits. There are no requirements that the student has to be, um, you know, have special needs or um, be from a, um, you know, a failing school or a low income school or anything like that. It would just be wide open to any student in the state. They don't even have to have previously attended public school like many of these programs start as as kind of an escape route, right? Like you've been to a public school, you tried that, it's not working, then you can apply for the voucher. But this particular proposal doesn't even have that. It's just, um, so all students that are currently in private school or homeschool would be eligible right off the bat. So really it's, uh, here's your money, go spend it wherever you want. Public school, private school, whatever. And doesn't matter who you are, where you go. Yeah, I mean, I think they would set it up in a way there that there would be, um, you know, approved vendors where you could spend your money. Um, and there would probably be, you know, similar to like the digital wallet program that we had um, during the pandemic with some pandemic relief funds. There's a platform, you know, where parents can go and spend their money. It's not cutting them a check. It's more like a, a digital account where they can see their balance and spend it on approved vendors. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. You can read all her investigative work and subscribe to her Education Watch weekly newsletter at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories 
reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.